You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is meditation. Well, this is I Love You Keep Going. It's my... Um, my weekly talk. It's uh, September 22nd, 2022 at 7.36 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I was thinking about talking about view today. Um, what I think about, uh, and I uh, was gonna frame it as attachment view, but it grows out of the, the experience of um, the Buddhist traditional ways of framing it. Um, Right view is, uh, of course, to see uh, the the value or the truth of the Four Noble Truths. Um, that's what we would consider that. So, um, it's a, 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 what I think is so interesting about American culture or culture in the West is that we tend to think of the uh, the uh, Four Noble Truths is an expression of nihilism or, or this kind of passive nihilism. It's often how it's uh, understood uh, because of the way that uh, our conditioning is. Um, uh, depending on how you uh, frame that, nihilism was a response to uh, uh, enlightenment, which was the uh, 16th, 17th hundreds. Uh, and the understanding of the nature of God in the Christian context in society, and then uh, the the divine meaning, and then nihilism in the passive form was that there is, of course, no meaning. Nothing is meaningful. Uh, nothing is intrinsically meaningful. Nothing is intrinsically valuable. It's all something that we make up for ourselves. Uh, and then the active uh, form of that is where you really try to... Uh, deconstruct things so you'll you'll hear that uh, i think sometimes in buddhist circles the deconstructing uh, experience and coming up to an essentially um, that there's nothing intrinsic nothing meaningful about it i i don't uh, think that that's actually what's intended by that i i really think that full engagement is what's intended by uh, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, uh, that it's the, the clinging to and wanting uh, what is happening to be different than it is and not understanding our influence in the way that we create experience, conditioned experience, which is the, the, the piece about view. Um, nihilism, of course, has given way to modernism and postmodernism in our culture, and postmodernism differs from, from nihilism, uh, in that nihilism is that there is no meaning, there is no intrinsic uh, meaning, there's no intrinsic value. And uh, postmodernism is really that uh, it's relative and we, we, we can't discern what's meaningful and what isn't meaningful because everything is, is understood in the context of our own conditioning, which might be closer, but it still does tend to uh, create a sense of relativism uh, about things. Uh, and I, I would also uh, take uh, 
uh, umbrage with that. Um, but when we begin to explore view, we really do get to see uh, the nature of our uh, conditioning, which is relevant to us. We do make up uh, the experiences that we're having in the way that human bodies make up the experience. And we know things the way that the human body can know things. Um, and some of those things are meaningful uh, even if they're only meaningful to us, they, that, that's still a value. It's not valueless. Um, I know that uh, sitting with Shinzen uh, for a long time, he was uh, constantly uh, interested in finding the theory of everything in meditation. The one form of meditation that everyone would do that would bring everyone to uh, the experience of liberation and um, and that somehow that was more valuable than the the individual strategies that people were using that led them to liberation uh, uh, and so I, I tended to find that the 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 uh, individual strategies uh, that work uh, are are valuable. Um, one of the things that uh, comes uh, forward in this is the attachment conditioning and that the way to repair attachment conditioning is not the same for all attachment conditions and you wouldn't be looking for a particular way of changing those views because the thing that causes those views is so different um, when you look at a secure person they think of themselves as capable and they think of the world as a place that will meet their needs, that all they have to do is ask for that and the world will respond to that. So they conduct themselves as if that were true. And in that, in the way that they conduct themselves, often they find that that is true in the sense that we create the experience uh, that we have. Um, and in the creation of that experience, we create uh, conduct. Uh, where we create, we create the intention and action that we take. George, you just said that secure people tend to think of themselves as capable, and the, for them, the world is a place that will meet their needs. Right. Can you can you unpack that a little bit and contrast it with the other attachment styles, just for us to have more context about that? So we don't see ourselves directly. We see ourselves as a reflection. So first, really, we see ourselves as a reflection of mind, um, but also we see ourselves as a reflection of other people. That is to say, other people experience us and reflect back to us what they're experiencing. And so when we're infants and we're uh, completely dependent on somebody taking care of us, we make an expression we don't even know what we need really we don't know any of that we just make the expression that something uh, needs to be different maybe i don't know it's hard to ask a newborn or a four four year old a four day old what what it is that they're actually thinking that created the gesture that that they expressed but then if you have a sensitive enough caregiver who's responsive they connect they use their capacity uh, to empathize. They use their capacity to understand the nature uh, of the request. 
they reflect back to the infant what that expression means in terms of their interpretation of it, and that they take an action to solve the, the dilemma of the infant. And the infant begins to track this. They begin to understand that if I express myself in this way, the person who comes to take care of me is going to respond in a certain way, and then they're going to do something for me. And so we begin to learn this vocabulary of how to express ourselves, but we're not making a universal expression. We're making a, an expression that's aimed at the caregiver who comes and their reflection back to us of what the, our expression means to them is what we begin to understand is uh, who we are and what we need and how we can go about getting it. Is that all making sense? Uh, you express yourself spontaneously. Uh, if you have a sensitive enough caregiver, they, they're paying attention, so they see the expression. And then they interpret the expression based on their, their conditioning. And then they respond back. They mirror back the expression of that. And then they take care of you. If you are secure, you don't worry about that. You make the expression and your expectation is that the response will be useful to you. That's the nature of the view of security. But uh, if that doesn't happen, then you develop other views about this, other expectations of uh, what the world will do and what it won't do for you. This is all not knowing necessarily whether your expression is uh, within reason or not, there isn't that aspect of it, just that you're making the expression and the world is responding in a particular way, and you are associating to the response of the world the uh, initial impulse to express it. All of this is without language, right? Um, so let's say that you uh, grow up to be a dismissing adult, what you notice in, in the childhood of a dismissing adult is that there isn't a sensitive caregiver there to receive the messages. And there isn't a meaningful response that's, a, that's associated with the particular message that you send. There's not much of a response. Uh, there's a sort of a practical care that comes where the sustenance needs are met, but the nurturance needs are not recognized. And so you don't look for the world to respond to those needs. You know, there's an economy to this. You look to the world to, to respond to expressions that actually uh, create uh, a response, right? You make a gesture that you have a sense will create some kind of response and the gestures that don't create any response you abandon. Is that making sense? So what you notice in childhoods of uh, um, people who grow up to be dismissing is a misattunement of the caregiver in the early part of life that's consistent. And so that the, the child learns not a, an authentic expression of themselves, but an expression of themselves that will get a response from the caregiver. So it's very focused on uh, um, the presentation of of uh, a version that is acceptable and everything that isn't that is not uh, expressed openly. And so that when you get to be older, uh, there is the world that's secret to you, that isn't expressible. 
And then there's the way that you need to express yourself in order to get a response from somebody else. And this is the way you are, right? All of that part of you that was rejected in childhood, all of that part of you that was suppressed is yours and not shareable. And then you get good at presenting to other people what it is you think that, that uh, they need you to express in order to get from them what you want. Is that making sense? Uh-huh. Okay. And what you just expressed is the is the is the worldview of the uh, what what do you call it? The second one. So that's the view of a dismissing person. Yeah, the view of the dismissing person. That sounds so painful. That sounds just so incredibly painful to consider. Yes, terribly painful, but also unexpressible. One of the reasons it's so painful is that the, the person who carries that feels that it's unexpressible, so they don't and express it. How do you begin to break through the barrier where that person starts to feel that they can, one, they can understand themselves, and two, they can express themselves and that they can get their needs met? It feels so overwhelming. Like, how do you help a person get to that place? Well, one of the things about dismissing people is that they explore well. And so they understand the, the advantages of exploration and they understand uh, finding value in things. So you don't have to convince them of that. Um, what you have to convince them of is that uh, even though their early experience was one of constant rejection of the things that were meaningful to them, not everyone will do that. Now, because they're good explorers, you can present this as, as a conundrum for them, that there are people who actually will respond to those unexpressible things in a way that would actually be satisfying to you in the expression of them. And that what you can do to find that out is, is make that expression and see what happens. And usually there's enough curiosity in a dismissing person that they're willing to try it. Now, you have to set it up for them in a way that they're careful about who they make that expression to, so that they don't reinforce the, the experience of rejection. Um, mostly, uh, the experience for dismissing people of rejection is the is a fearfulness of being abandoned. And when you do, you said how painful you uh, it must have been for them, if you set up kids secure, dismissing, uh, preoccupied, and disorganized, or secure, uh, anxious, avoidant, anxious, ambivalent, and disorganized, the anxious, avoidant. The kids are the ones in the most pain because they never ask anyone to help them with it. Uh, and so the, the terrible sadness for them is what uh, they need to be able to hold in order to try that. And, but because there are, they are good explorers, if you ask them to see if they can hold the terrible sadness, most of the time, pretty quickly, they have the experience that they can, and then it's not an impediment for them anymore, because really, the thing that keeps that area protected is the fearfulness around uh, having to be 
plunged into the terrible sadness. Is that helpful? So they Just, are pretty big. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So they are pretty close to secure in a sense, but they just have this one big hurdle of, of holding on to this sadness about the fear of being rejected and their needs not being met. Well, it depends. Uh, you know, there's a, a spectrum of dismissing somebody who is uh, a D1, let's say, uh, their, their emotional system is completely shut off and clo they're closed off to it and uh, also they don't value relationships. And so you have to repair the capacity to experience emotions, and then you have to get them to change their mind about valuing relationships, which means the, uh, they need to learn uh, to collaborate. So when you look at the three dimensions of secure functioning, you have the attachment system. Their attachment system is suppressed and left off. Their exploration system, which is left on, and uh, the collaboration system. They don't have a collaborative system, so they have to learn to collaborate. That's challenging for them. And they don't have uh, an attachment system activated, so they have to activate that. So it actually can be quite a bit that they need to do, but it's easier to fix and they already know how to explore so that they can uh, investigate and uh, find uh, direct experiences of things that support actually activating the attachment system and actually uh, 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 because they can explore, they can learn the collaborative system faster than somebody like a preoccupied person who doesn't know how to explore. The problem with not knowing how to explore is you have to learn to explore before you can then learn the things that you need to know in order to change the underlying view. So whereas the secure kid has uh, good enough uh, responses to the gestures they make and a dismissing um, uh, adult or a anxious avoidant kid has consistent uh, failure in that area. A preoccupied uh, adult had a childhood, an anxious, ambivalent childhood, where the, the response of the caregiver was unpredictable. But unpredictable enough that they didn't ever settle into the idea that they could make a gesture that would elicit a specific response. Is that making sense? So both the secure person and the dismissing person uh, understands consistency, uh, different ends of that. But a preoccupied adult doesn't understand consistency and they don't understand uh, learning how to communicate with somebody in a particular way that would ensure how that person is going to respond. Whereas the dismissing person is pretty confident that they're going to be rejected every single time because that was their early conditioning. A preoccupied adult uh, never settles into a sense of safety and security in a relationship because they never uh, know how to elicit from the other person uh, their uh, authentic needs to be met. 
And this comes from the experience of sometimes the caregiver responds appropriately, sometimes they respond inappropriately, and sometimes they don't respond. And so uh, remember that in that secure uh, dyadic experience, the child expresses something, the caregiver uh, connects to it, uh, empathetically understands it, mirrors back to the child so that they can see what that connection is and then responds in a way that's useful to the child. But that doesn't happen for a preoccupied adult. The responses are all over the place, so they never learn what to do. So they're always in a question about what do I do here to get the response that I want. And often they're obligated to respond in a way that the caregiver understands. There's no attempt by the caregiver to understand the needs of the child. The child has to learn the caregiver's responses. So the child moves out of being authentically responsive and attempting to respond in the way that they think in that moment the caregiver will understand what they want and provide that for them. Is that making sense? So they lose track of themselves and become oriented toward the caregiver. The view is external and other. Christian? Can you contrast that, um, that very external view of the preoccupied uh, child, I guess, that is reading, I guess, reading the caregiver and eliciting the response that way with the uh, dismissing or ambivalent child, avoidant child that is able to, I guess, transact and get the care from the caregiver? Is it because the caregiver is saying specifically, this is how I will take care of you if you do this? And then the child knows that and can do that consistently? Like, what's the difference between the two? Because they both get their needs. They both get something. They both get a response. Right. Uh, and and so why does the avoidant child not get that like hyper attuned to the caregiver orientation? Because of the consistency. But what's actually like what what is actually getting the care for the avoidant child? The avoidant child learns what they have to do, what performance they have to give in order to get what they want. And each time they do that performance, they get what they want. And that's because the caregiver is explicitly telling them what to do? Or, or least... they, they learn it through observation and trial and error. But it's not inconsistent. Okay. Uh, they learn that if they authentically express some things to the caregiver, that that's going to be rejected. And so they learn to keep those secret. They learn uh, what the caregiver values and what the caregiver wants from them. And then they produce that. And then the caregiver responds in a consistent way. Okay. So what, what they get oriented toward is what do I want? And what do I have to then do to get it? And then they do the thing that they have to do to get it, and then they get it. Uh, part of the thing uh, that happens to dismissing people is that because it's an inauthentic expression, and uh, because the expression for them is not uh, often 
tied to something real, uh, they learn that it's the expression itself that's enough. The transaction is complete when they make the expression. So one of the things that you'll notice in dismissing people is they promise to do everything for you. Everything that they think you need them to promise in order to get what they want from you, they'll promise. But in their mind, the expression of that is, is the complete, when you give them the thing that they want, the transaction is complete. Uh, in secure people, you would expect them to deliver on the promises that they made. But a dismissing person doesn't have that association with making those promises. They think that the making of the promise is uh, when, when, the, when you deliver to them what they want, that the transaction is complete. I'll love you forever. And then you give them what they want and, and then that's it. So it's that easy. You just have to say, I love you forever. <laughs> uh, to somebody who would accept that, this uh, secure person won't accept that. So uh, when we talk about empathy, we talk about that first level of empathy, which is the visceral response, the witnessing of somebody's physical or emotional pain. And the second level of empathy is where you, you can look at somebody's uh, facial expressions and body language and understand that that's a representation of, uh, of that has some meaning to it. And you maybe can assign meaning to it. The third is that what we call in Buddhism, compassion and empathy, where you actually feel in your body uh, a facsimile of the emotional experience, the internal emotional experience of someone else. And then the fourth piece, uh, which secure people re require, is that you do what you say you're going to do. But in the experiences that they had in childhood, that always happened. And in insecure households, that is that doesn't happen so much. So dismissing person, uh, um, you know, the conundrum for a dismissing person is the parent says, oh, "I love you. You're the you're the most valuable uh, person in the world to me," and then then they're they're neglected. So how do you make sense of that contradiction? You make sense of it by splitting off what people say uh, from what they what they do. So in, in, in the, the world of a dismissing person, what you say is what matters, not what you do. Uh, your caregiver said to you that you are the most valuable child in the world. And the only way that you can sum that is by splitting off the fact that you're profoundly neglected. Is that making sense? Um, and so you become self-oriented, you become internally oriented because uh, the only way that you can stand the experience of so much rejection and so much sadness is to disconnect from emotional experience. So the main way of regulating emotion that dismissing people use is to suppress awareness of it. And you can suppress it at a lot of different levels. You could uh, main, you could suppress the felt sense of emotion and retain the capacity to recognize emotional states in other, which is um, a very effective place for dismissing people to be in. You can suppress the felt sense of emotion and also an understanding of uh, body language and facial expressions, which is more limiting. 
uh, if you're at that level, then you can only rely on what people tell you. So you have to get good at quizzing people to tell you in a way that's not obvious so that you have that information that they use. And then you can even suppress the felt sense of pain in other people. Well, maybe we should talk about preoccupied people. Um, Zoom user. <laughs> you have to unmute. Got it. Uh, hi, everybody. George, thank you. Uh, would, would you um, uh, piece out a little bit of uh, disorganized? Uh, Sort of, because as 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 you describe, I'm like, yep, that's a little bit of me. That's a little bit of me. Like, I feel like a buffet of all of these things. Um, uh, but I know that historically, I've you know frozen, I, I guess, in relationship and, and pushed it away. Uh, because it was um, too nerve-wracking because showing up, I believe that I wouldn't be able to show up for someone. Um, so, yeah. I, hope I, I don't think I expressed it uh, the way I would have liked to. But. So uh, disorganization is uh, uh, where you have uh, responses that are uh, secure, dismissive, or preoccupied as a, a kind of complex system. <coughs> where the child has had to learn multiple strategies <coughs> in order to respond. Um, so that comes from an environment that was very complex. And so there was no reliable, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> way of responding. How that manifests in terms of relationships is that it's very hard for somebody to predict how you're gonna respond. And so they don't settle into a sense of safety with you, a sense of reliability with you, because they can't predict how they're going to respond. What we all want to do in relationships is to learn the, the way to communicate to the other person so that we can be effective in our communication to them. And if you can't predict how somebody is going to respond, you can't learn a vocabulary so that it puts you in an unreliable category. If you're in an unreliable category, then uh, pretty much you're self-excluding from secure people because they won't do unreliable. Um, and then you're uh, uh, going to have to be in relationship with people who don't mind whether you're reliable or not. And so the only people that really don't mind whether you're unreliable or not are dismissing people or other disorganized people. 
dismissing people don't mind you being unreliable as long as when you show up, you have the juice that they want or the psychic uh, uh, supplies that they want. And um, disorganized when people we talk are... About, mm -hmm, go ahead. Uh, when we talk about uh, unreliable, uh, so my, you know, I clearly have a history of like flaking. Right. Could that be, uh, but I don't, I don't think that like my emotional responses or what have you in relationships uh, is unreliable. It's, so the, is the flaking, yeah, flakiness is another thing. So flakiness right. is, okay. is about the experience of not being able to reliably re regulate your own emotional states. So you can't predict what state you're going to be in so that when you make a plan with somebody, if you're in, a, in a, an emotional state where you can't follow through on the plan, uh, you don't. Uh, you make all sorts of explanations for that. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter uh, whether or not uh, you have a good reason for not being able to come or you're actually describing an emotional experience that you're having that prevents you from coming. At the end of the day, uh, reliable people want you to show up. And so their expectation is that you have the capacity to emotionally regulate yourself well enough that you do show up. Uh, and that's what matters. Um, and so the reason that um, disorganized people have a hard time uh, emotionally regulating is because they, they are auto regulators and they withdraw in them, into themselves to regulate, which is a really inefficient way of doing it. Uh, so, um, yeah. you know, uh, if a secure person is dysregulated and they can't regulate themselves, they reach out to somebody who they have available to them will help them regulate so that they never really go too long without being in contact with somebody who's effective in regulating them. And disorganized people don't do that. So they are often in a situation where they're dysregulated and they don't have anyone that they can rely on to help them regulate. And so the process of re-regulating takes much longer. There are also a fearfulness around what will happen if they make the wrong response. And so they, they get into these loops of where they have to come up with uh, the exact right response so that they protect themselves from the catastrophic results that could happen uh, from making the wrong response. But then they have the childhood experience where if they don't respond, uh, they can have ca catastrophic uh, responses from their caregivers, which is not something that uh, more uh, organized uh, attachment strategies have. Is that making sense? So the dysregulation, the emotional dysregulation that they experience is something that they, they take on uh, for themselves to regulate and, and depending on the depth of the, the, the dysregulation, it can take quite a while, hours or days even for them to re-regulate. And so they have a, 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 a response time that's very unpredictable and way too long for somebody who's expecting a more secure response. Makes sense. Which I relate 
I don't <laughs> uh, too much. Yeah. So then, yes, thank uh, you. Part of this is the changing of the view that um, that uh, you're in danger now. You were in danger in childhood and uh, had not so much control over it, but you don't have that uh, that now if you're careful about who you pick to be in relationship to. We didn't get to preoccupied and we're about out of time for talking, so we can continue with this next time. But um, Randy or Debbie, your hand is up. I didn't know how to unmute. I hate this. Um, George, I wanted to ask you a question about, um, like, I guess, I don't know how, if this is related, related to view and attachment particularly, but um, like there, there are times where, um, you know, I've had interactions with uh, someone in my life where um, they, they have a very, you know, colored view of the world based on their, it's probably based on their attachment. Um, and in particular, like they have, um, it's my sibling and, and I think he, he, my mother are similar where they, they will project a kind of like, um, you did not fulfill my expectations in a certain way you ought to. And then there's like a, a view that's very strongly cast and then, and then it, it elicits like a guilt from people around that person. Um, and I wonder if that's related to a, a specific attachment style or how that, it, I don't know how to describe it, but like if somebody has a view and that also affects your response and your view of yourself in relationship to them, if that makes sense. Like their right. anger elicits a guilt kind of thing. Right. So you express yourself in a way, and then they reflect that back to you. So you're, you're, you see yourself as they reflect it back to you. And in childhood, we have a tendency to take on the reflection as, as it being true. And what you're describing is the, the adult condition where you're getting this reflection back, but it doesn't seem to match well enough to who you think you are now. But it still has that uh, programming to, to cause a sense of uh, guilt arising in you. So that they're eliciting from you a, a response that you're conditioned to uh, respond at, at uh, so that they can get from you what they want. Is that making sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And that's related to, do you think that's related to attachment or? I, well, just... I, I, I think that the inducing of guilt in somebody else is usually a, a, comes from a presentation of helplessness of some sort, which would point toward a preoccupied uh, expression. I can't do this for myself and you can do it for me, so you should do it for me, which is what creates the sense of guilt. What? I'm angry at you if you don't do it for me. Right, because I can't do it for myself and you you can. 
And so if okay, you don't yeah. do it for me, then I then it won't be done for me. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's <but> so aggravating. <laughs> the part that's aggravating is that it's probably not true. Right. It isn't true. Right. And and like then then kind of like being in relationship with someone who is presenting that can be very frustrating um in a way that you're just like you want to be in relationship with them but the the guilt that they're trying to elicit it can be so um it feels so aversive like it feels like such a negative emotion that, that it brings well, up it's it, hard to be in relationship to them because it's so inauthentic so yeah. how do you have an authentic relationship with somebody who responds so consistently in an inauthentic manner? Um, that's the main yeah. conundrum. Right. I think. Do you have suggestions? What, um, <laughs> what I usually say is, um, um, what are you going to do? Um, I can't do that for you, but what are you going to do? Um, or what have you done? Because a lot of times they've already made a decision about what they're going to do. Well, that's an interesting thought. What are you going to do about it? So you just don't take it on, but then ask them what they're going to do. Well, if you want to brainstorm, I'm happy to do that. And then after a little brainstorm, you can say, well, what'd you decide to do? So they, they want you to solve the problem, but really it's not about solving the problem. It's about the proximity that they can get from engaging you in a problem solving experience so that if you see it clearly and understand that it's not actually about solving the problem it's about connecting then you can move past you having any responsibility or needing to solve the problem to just how they're going to solve it and that that might be more useful for them um, But it, you know, secure relationships function on an authentic expression, and if they they're, they're unable to express themselves authentically, it's hard to have that. So then you're orienting them as a C or a D in in the in the framework of the Dunbar framework. That makes sense. Thank you. You know, most of the time with preoccupied people, if they present a problem to you and you present a solution to them, they reject the solution because it's not about finding a solution. And so you end up in a helpless loop with them. They keep presenting the problem, you keep presenting solutions, and none of them work. Which ultimately what that ends up uh, is you feeling a sense of helplessness, which is one of the things that we don't like 
in relationships. We don't like to feel that we're helpless to help somebody who's demanding that we help them. So that's one of the things that we become aversive to and withdraw from because of the unpleasantness of the experience. But I'm thinking maybe we should do some meta practice. So, uh, um, I'll let you choose who you want to practice for. But go ahead and take your meditation postures and we'll begin. How did that go? Good. Um, we have a treat coming up. There's still some spaces left in that. If you're interested, uh, let us know. Um, we're doing a, a level one for Central European time in November. Um, I think that's what's coming up mainly uh, for the rest of the year. Christian? George, could I just ask you something briefly after the class? Okay. Um, I offer this teaching on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. There's a link on the website to make a donation. Uh, any amount is appreciated. Help support me and also the work Meta Group is doing. Of course, we do welcome you to come practice with us. Uh, um, I will be here next Thursday, but the Thursday after that, I'll be on retreat and then back after that. Good to see you. See you soon. Bye. Thanks, George. Mm -hmm. Bye. What's up? Uh, I, I don't know if you're totally bewildered by Harley's reaction, but um, I um, I just noticed that he had his hand up, but the little icon is yellow and it was like exactly blending into the background. Oh, I didn't so, see it. Yeah, I figured. So perhaps he just felt like literally unseen in that. So I just wanted to offer that context in case that helped. Well, I didn't take it personally. And I, I think that something must be happening for him. Right. That would make him so sensitive. Uh, sure. He is, I mean, he was clearly demonstrating dismissiveness uh, pretty, pretty well. Um, yeah, I couldn't track. I couldn't track the trigger in the in the talk myself. So I found it kind of bewildering. But if that I don't know if that was disturbing to you, but I thought I would offer that bit of well, it's just it's sad that that he's uh, that I had such a hard reaction. I will email him in the morning since the apology didn't have any effect. Sure. And see what's up. It's not the first time that he's disappeared, mm -hmm. but it's been a while since he has. Uh, I don't know. Um, and the tenor of the conversation didn't feel so differently than it normally does when we talk about it. So. No, I, yeah, I was, I was joking as usual, but I, I didn't think that anything that anyone was saying was, I, I thought it was actually pretty compassionate towards the dismissive 
the person with a dismissive attachment style. So I imagine that there was something else going on, but if that, if that was helpful, maybe, maybe that was part of it for him. Cause I noticed that he uh, turned yeah, the camera I could off. see that, uh, he was being rejected. Mm -hmm. Did he have the hand up while his camera was on? I didn't, yes. I mean, I literally didn't see it. Yeah, he did. And then like, you could see like when Jake, Jake's little icon thing, just because the, there was no contrast in his, like the lighting was like, especially yellow, you know? So, so maybe he was like seeing other people were, were able to get recognized or something. And, and he was, he was sitting there because uh -huh. I saw that he turned his camera off after, after he put his hand down. So anyway, perhaps um, I'm not trying to be preoccupied about it, but that was my, that was my guess at the, some of the context. Yeah, he did say that. Um, but normally that, that isn't enough. Right. Um, and he did end up just speaking out, which he could have done at any point. Mm -hmm. Don't know. It seemed um, I think he probably came triggered and was hoping for some solace and didn't get it. Sure. But who knows? And maybe he'll tell me and maybe he won't. Yeah, I was kind of a, I don't know, from a clinical standpoint, it was an interesting view into like seeing someone not mentalizing, I guess. Yeah, no, he wasn't mentalizing at all. Yeah. He he experienced it as intentionally rejecting, but right. that's what happens when dismissing people stop mentalizing. They experience pretty much everything as rejecting, right? And even the even me offering the the that wasn't the intention, and I and apologizing didn't help, right? So, don't know. Okay. Well. That was it. Hopefully, uh, have a good night, George. All right. Bye.